0: Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream number 166. I am Dr. Brett Weinstein. This is Dr. Heather Hying. 166 is not a prime number on multiple grounds. And uh, there's a lot that we uh, we need to cover. I will say I forgot to mention this to you. I am uh, going to make a reversal, not a complete reversal, but a partial reversal of a position that I have previously Taken on today's stream, yes. Excellent, I am changing my position on the announcement of one's pronouns. Yep, the announcement of one's pronouns. Let me just say that uh, in general, I have found that I am so good at guessing people's pronouns um, that it is unnecessary that people announce them. Yes. But I am now cautiously in favor of the announcing of the pronouns of a cat upon first meeting. So you know... What sex cat you're dealing with? Without um... is this
1: based on the piece that I just published?
0: I don't think so. No.
1: No, you haven't read it. No. No.
0: Uh oh, that's <laughs> embarrassing. Um. No. Okay. Well, I'm now excited to read that piece <laughs> to find out how it connects to so, the...
1: So what prompts? What prompts, So I, I, I begin, this is from uh, not this week's uh, Natural Selections, but last week's, I begin with a true story about having interacted with a friend of ours, young son, uh, some number of years ago, uh, when we were looking across the yard. And I, I asked him, oh, what sex is your cat? And uh, Maybe both. And I said, no, cats aren't like that. And he called me a liar.
0: I remember this story. No, I was just prompted uh, to, to this thought by realizing that I'm not entirely convinced. I'm betting there are cases in which somebody has gotten a bad diagnosis of their cat's sex early in life and have probably uh, had the cat for its entire life without coming to understand what uh, was truly going on.
1: I you mean, know? you know, you, you have in your own family some bad diagnoses of, of, of cat sex.
0: Uh, trying to remember.:
1: Well, I, I believe uh, we will presumably hear about, it if I'm wrong, that uh, back during the, uh, the Gulf War, uh, your parents came into possession of a cat whom they named Storm oh, and Norman. Yes. and Storm and Norman there turned out to be a, a female cat, a so female. they changed the name to Norma.
0: Right. Yes. Storma Norma.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the, am, I, am I... No, no, yeah, I, I believe right? that
0: story is completely accurate. <laughs> okay. And uh, I do think that this I is I feel an, like you
1: came unprepared today. It's
0: an excellent demonstration of the need to announce a cat's pronouns upon first meeting, which was really my point.
1: Um, so you think the cats should now be announcing their pronouns? Is that the idea? To the
0: extent possible, sure. But yeah. if they can't do it, I wouldn't mind somebody else stepping in. And actually it How might... How a
1: placard of some sort, like a... <laughs>
0: Sure, or a, you know, some sort of a you know a flag on a on a hat or something. But um,
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> cat store hats with flags. Well, I okay. you know, I, yeah. mean,
0: uh, I just think why not
1: shorts too? it? Right?
0: <laughs> I don't think a cat would put up with shorts. Hats is really one thing, okay. But, uh, uh-huh. Yeah. All right. Well, this is off to a weird start.
1: <laughs> indeed. Um, indeed, it is. Yes. Indeed, it is. Oh man, it is. Almost spring here in the Northern Hemisphere. And he, at least in the San Juan Islands where we are, man, it feels like the season changed like two days ago. Instantly. Two, three days ago. Like, just the light feels different. The It just, oh, it, everything is coming alive and it feels great. Um, and, you know, there are people... For whom winter is their favorite season and, you know, all of this. And we'll say, I'm going to put you guys aside for the moment. For all the rest of you, for those of you in the Southern Hemisphere, I'm, I'm sorry. But uh, we we are <laughs> here in the Northern Hemisphere. It is it is happening. Spring is coming. Then summer. Lovely.
0: Well, I was actually uh, of, of a similar mindset. And I was going to point out that this is our last winter podcast for the year. Mm-hmm. And I was going to suggest it. Mm-hmm.
1: That... No, nope. won't be. Sure it will. Well, winter begins on the 21st of December, and there will almost, there being more than seven days beyond the 21st of September, we'll probably have a podcast uh, at the very beginning of winter.
0: Um, we are exiting the winter season, and we will do so on the Equinox, which is the 20th this year.
1: This year it is. Yes. yes.
0: So this will be our last winter podcast, us, us being, exiting of the season
1: this is, the calendar year, yes. however, uh, will end at the beginning of winter, not on the... Fir- on...
0: Oh, got it. Yeah, <laughs> all right. I was not making an astronomical error. I was making a, uh, a clerical error, um, the clerics having defined the calendar rather oddly from my perspective. But okay, in any case, my suggestion was going to be that for those who will miss the Winter Dark Horse podcast, all you got to do is move to the Southern Hemisphere and you got another several months of them coming three months in fact but not right away (laughs) right you got a few days to arrange that
1: starting um starting in it's today's the 18th starting in two days there will be no winter broadcasting possible on this planet for three months
0: that is correct yes 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 oh that's good yeah. All right. Well, so we have worked our way to clarity, which is what we do in this family and on this I really podcast. I think we did. No, I think we did. And uh okay. it was painful, but you know, you know, it, it's not about the journey, it's about the destination and we got there.
1: So, this week for the first time in 3 weeks, we are going to follow this live stream with a Q&A, which, you know, after that remarkable display, I don't know that anyone is going to want to stick around, but if you do, if you have questions, Ask them if and, somehow,
0: uh, despite all that clarity, you still have cues, then we will we will aid them
1: yeah and um, and then there's another way to ask us questions also, which is that we do a monthly private q and a at my patreon right now, the question asking period is open at my patreon, so consider joining uh, us there. We do a, a joint monthly private q and a, and you have conversations at your patreon. You have one tomorrow, in fact, yes, right. Uh, so those those are um, are good ways to um, to join us in other in other venues. There's also a Discord server that is available at both of our Patreons, where they have karaoke and happy hours and book clubs and all sorts of awesomeness. Uh, you can also uh, read about um, uh, a confused child and his feelings about cats uh, at My Natural Selections. Uh, this week I published something. This is just this is. It's, it's always surprising to me. I published something that I called How Now, Cal of Brown, um, which I, I guess you know, it, it worked because it took off. It became one of, by far, the most popular pieces that I've ever published, and I really did not see that coming. So um,
0: I love that title.
1: I, you know, I, th- I think the title went a long way. Yeah, so. It's
0: a great title because it's a terrible title. I love right. that about it.
1: Right, right. So it's, it's an exploration, not of pronouns. Uh, But of adjectives and word order and how the frickin' language police would have us believe that by changing, by brute force, by diktat, uh, you know, standard English usage, we are somehow going to solve the problems of the world. Which, of course, A, we're not. B, that's not how language works. And C, what the hell, guys? Come on. Grow up and, you know, get a clue. Point of order. Yes?
0: Are all language police bastards.
1: Well, see, I... I think this is another reason that this piece uh, was as popular as it was, is that I actually created a little graphic uh, hashtag defund the language police. Oh, you did. Yes. Oh, wow.
0: We are on parallel wavelengths. I'm just days behind. <laughs> that really, a...
1: You haven't read anything I've been posting for a while.
0: <laughs> well, at least for the week. Yeah. Uh,
1: well, and last week,
0: the last two. weeks. All
1: right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. The admissions are <laughs> flying fast and furious. Yes. Yeah. So
1: yes. Um, uh, all language cops may be bastards. I I had that actually in the piece, and I took that out. And I went like, you know what? Hashtag defund the language police, not the actual police. And then we can talk. And you know, then we can talk. Then we can actually talk. And then let's get down to business, talking about how to actually solve some of the problems of the world, as opposed to all of this, um, you know, X of Y stuff instead of um, using language, using English the way uh, that English is used, which is to say adjective first, then noun. All right, so that piece is there, what?
0: I believe, uh, there's just no way for me to elegantly deal with this at the moment. Uh I believe you have a small piece of lint, and I think it's gonna be on your right side, right about here. (laughs) Here we go. Okay.
1: All right. Okay. All right. I didn't see it. I think it may have been in your head, but we'll hear about that. Okay.
0: We can go back to the instant replay. You'll see it was not a figment of my imagination.
1: Wait. So you've, okay, let's do it.
0: Oh, we can't. Oh, instant replay. No, the (laughs) delayed (laughs) replay by several hours, but um, nonetheless, can be done. Can be done.
1: Okay. Okay. So I also, on Natural Selections this week, went back and recorded audio of both How Now a Cow of Brown and uh, He, Me, She, They, and also, apparently, We're the Bad Guys, which uh, was another um, surprise hit, uh, in which I detail some, by no means all, of the positions that we have um, had over the pandemic, uh, and uh, just... Sort of laid them out and said, "Okay, um, these are these are some of the things we've talked about."
0: An incredible string of uh, being right by accident for the wrong reasons and through total guesses—is not that uh,
1: precisely? Yep. Yeah. Yes, precisely. All right. Um, maybe it's time to go to our sponsors. We are grateful uh, for our sponsors. We start off after whatever this was um, with three ads at the top of the show, and here we go. All right. Our first sponsor this week is Mudwater, one of our favorites. Mudwater makes a fantastic drink. It's spicy and delicious and chock full of medicinal mushrooms and other goodnesses. With a seventh the caffeine is a cup of coffee, you get energy without the anxiety, jitters, or crash of coffee. It can be thought of as a coffee alternative, but it's way more than that. If you like the routine of making and drinking a cup of warmth in the morning, but don't drink coffee or are trying to cut down, try Mudwater. If you are looking for a different way to kick off your day, a delicious, warming, enhancing way that isn't just a caffeine rush, try Mudwater. Each ingredient was added with intention. It has cacao and chai, lion's mane mushrooms, cordyceps, shaga, and reishi, turmeric, and cinnamon. And It's not the cordyceps that'll get into your brain and make you climb something and then um, for the forest. Yeah, it's not. It's not it that. It's a, it's that a different. They yeah, they promise. Mm, they promise. And I mean, I've been drinking mud water, and it hasn't happened it, to me I yet.
0: So noticed it, and I would have.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, so this is this is this is the cordyceps that's good for <laughs> it's people. Good cordyceps. Yes. Yeah, um, it's a it's an incredibly diverse clade
0: cordyceps yeah yeah also. yeah
1: yeah mud water not so much so actually you know actually yes mud water also makes hey a non-dairy creamer out of coconut milk and MCT and a sweetener out of coconut palm sugar and lacuma which is the fruit of an Indian tree which was used by the Inca and um, you can add those the not their non-dairy creamer their sweetener um, if you if you like. Or you can mix and match. Add a bit of their coconut milk and MCT creamer with some honey from bees, real bees. Or use Mudwaters, Lacuma and coconut palm sugar sweetener and skip the bees entirely if the bees don't make you feel comfortable. We've added Mudwaters coconut milk and MCT creamer to other hot drinks as well, and it's delicious. Mudwater's flavor is warm and spicy with a hint of chocolate, masala chai, which includes ginger and cardamom, nutmeg and cloves. It's also delicious blended into a smoothie. Try it with banana and ice, milk or milk-like substance, mint, and cacao nibs. Mudwater is 100% USDA organic, non-GMO, gluten-free, vegan, and kosher certified, and it allows you to build a morning ritual that promotes sustained energy without the crash. Visit mudwater.com slash darkhorse to support the show and use code DarkhorseMUD at checkout for fifteen percent off. That's M U D W T R Mudwater.com slash Darkhorse. Use Dark Horse Mud at checkout for fifteen percent off.
0: You do not have to be a vegan or even to associate with vegans. You're
1: or kosher, or gluten free, or um, I don't even know what it would mean to be not non-GMO. You yourself don't have to be not genetically modified <laughs> to appreciate this product.
0: Wow, which means you can be genetically modified.
1: And still appreciate mud water, wow. which I think you will, regardless of how modified you are. Our second sponsor this week is House of Macadamias. That's macadamia nuts. Tree nuts are delicious and nutritious. They are generally high in fat and low in carbohydrates. Unlike what various food pyramids and government agencies might have led you to believe, high-fat, low-carb foods are increasingly understood to be both satiating and good for you. But each species of nut is different, and for many of us, macadamias are the best. Macadamia nuts take a very long time to grow, however, and because they are both rare and highly sought after, they have the dubious distinction of being the world's most expensive nut. Between the taste and the health benefits, though, they're worth it. They have even fewer carbohydrates than most other nuts, for instance, half of what cashews or pistachios have, and two-thirds of what almonds have, which makes them the perfect mm, the perfect snack for breaking a daily fast and controlling blood glucose. They're also uniquely rich in omega-7s, including especially palmitoleic acid, an unsaturated fat that has been linked to natural collagen production, fat loss, and heart health. And um... Uh, yeah, fat loss and heart health, not fat health and heart loss, because that would be bad. That would be bad. Yeah. Either one. Um, I mean, fat health. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I don't even know what that means. Um, House of Macadamias is intent on making this amazing food accessible to everyone. They have partnered with more than 90 farmers in Africa and now make one-of-a-kind vegan, again, keto and paleo snacks. These include their dark chocolate dipped macadamias and a delicious assortment of bars made with 45% macadamia nuts in favors, favors, flavors, including salted caramel and chocolate coconut. But our favorite product of theirs are the simple salted macadamias made with Namibian sea salt. They're amazing. We love them and think that you will too. Our House of Academias highly recommends House of Macadamias for all of your macademic needs. Looking for something to nourish and energize you while in pursuit of the truth or while climbing the next next summit? Go to www.houseofmacadamias.com and use code darkhorse for a 20% Discount on every order. Plus, Dark Horse listeners will receive a complimentary four ounce bag of macadamias when they order three or more boxes of any macadamia product. Once again, that's houseofmacadamias.com. Use code Dark Horse for 20% off every order. You won't be sorry.
0: So, I wonder who discovered the macadamia nut and whether they were capable of retiring on that contribution to humanity. Kind of like the bacon wrapped date, the first person to do that, you feel like they contributed enough. Much more than most people do, and it should have been sufficient for them to move somewhere nice and, I don't know, look out at the view, right? (laughs) I bet they didn't. No, I bet they didn't either. Yeah. Right. In fact, they were probably... um... I
1: actually don't know. I feel like I looked into it when I was researching macadamias when we first accepted the sponsor. Um, I don't remember where they're native And But I assume wherever they are native, um, that they were discovered to be edible by the people who were first there as opposed to by mostly the people who are currently um, mostly in charge of selling them um, to us. But maybe, you know, given that uh, they're being farmed in Africa, maybe they're native to Africa, although I'm not sure about that.
0: I don't know. I would not be surprised if someone plagiarized a primate for the idea. Yeah, we do that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. we sure do. All right. We got one more sponsor. Yes, we do. Our final sponsor this week is MD Hearing Aid. MD Hearing Aid makes high-quality, simple, and effective hearing aids for a tiny fraction of what most hearing aids cost, helping bring audio clarity and capacity to people who might not otherwise be able to afford it. MD Hearing Aid was founded by an ENT surgeon who made it his mission to develop a quality hearing aid that anyone could afford. He kept the price low by simplifying the product, removing several rarely needed components. And he made a product that aims to fit so well no one will know you're wearing it. Other features include rechargeable batteries that last up to 30 hours, water resistance in up to 3 feet of water in their Volt Plus model, and you don't need a prescription to get one. MD Hearing Aid has cut out the middleman, so you buy your hearing aid directly from the source, where audiologists and licensed hearing specialists are available 7 days a week. Everyone can empathize with what it feels like to be left out of a conversation that others are enjoying. Here's a testimonial from a friend of ours who has substantial hearing loss and who relies on hearing aids. We asked her to try this product, and here is what she said. Quote, With my particular type of hearing loss, a deep male voice in a noisy room is the hardest situation for me to hear and understand speech. I wore the MD hearing aid to have a conversation with a deep-voiced man in a room with a lot of white noise. The MD hearing aid passed the test as my conversation partner's voice was clear and understandable. At a price point of under $1,000, I was amazed at how effective they are. MD hearing aid is bringing affordable hearing to hundreds of of thousands of people, people who might not otherwise be able to afford high-quality hearing aids. Get clinic-level care for 90% less with MD Hearing Aid, which offers a 45-day risk-free trial and money-back guarantee. Go to mdhearingaid.com and use the promo code Dark Horse to get their new buy one, get one deal. A pair of hearing aids cost just $149.99. Plus, Dark Horse listeners will receive a free extra charging case, $100 value. So head to mdhearingaid.com and use the promo code DARKHORSE to get their new buy one, get one deal, a pair of hearing aids for only $149.99.
1: So uh, we, in in all of that silliness that we started at the top of the hour with, did not talk about where we're going today. We are going to start by talking about um, farming and ants. And then... Uh, we're going to take the natural segue from there and talk about uh control and uh, narratives mm-hmm. and uh, we are going to end with a couple of stories that we've heard this week uh that uh should i think give us a bit of hope and it all actually ties together, although if you just use um if you just look at the topics that we're talking about, it all sounds. Uh, a, a little bit a little bit diverse and we'll we'll get some uh, raccoon dogs in there
0: for d- better or diverse
1: if you say so i
0: did and there's nothing <laughs> i can do about it now i can't take it back even if i think that would be wise can
1: we get that in instant replay, or, or not so much
0: <laughs> severely delayed replay yes okay. potentially
1: okay um so i was recently researching at atene ants, leafcutter ants, uh, for, uh, some presentations that we were giving a couple weeks ago and, uh, and looking into the question of the evolution of farming in leafcutter ants and what the comparisons are, if any, uh, to the evolution of farming in humans. And one of the comparisons is, well, humans, uh, originated farming many many times across the world and in, in fact in China alone there are two different evolutions of farming there's at least um there's at least uh one origin in Europe maybe more um, a couple in the new world um several um you know several all over the world but it's always it seems within like t- about 10 to 12,000 years ago 12,000 years ago is about as far back as we think farming goes uh, there was some uh, domestication happening before then, uh, but agriculture is 10,000, 12,000 years ago in each of the places that it happens independently, whereas ants started farming um, 50 million years ago. They've had a bit of a head start on They
0: us. definitely thought of it.
1: They definitely. Well, they definitely, yes. I Funny, of course, to say it that way, but of course, one of the big dis- differences. You know, one of the reasons that we have been able to, you know, catch up and in some ways you might say surpass them in terms of the diversity that, that we have uh, employed our farming uh, with is that, of course, for them, presumably it's entirely genetic, right? They, they, mm-hmm. they're, 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 they're little robots uh, running around doing their thing and it's working for them and it's working for the fungus that they are um, farming on the leaves that they are cutting and carrying and, and growing the fungus on as substrate. Uh, but they are not uh, learning in real time, right? To you know how how to farm better or different things or anything. And so there's a lot, of course, to be said about uh, about this. Uh, but there is one paragraph in this really remarkable paper, really long, like a monograph in um, in a book called *Insect Fungal Associations: Ecology and Evolution*. A piece um, by Schultz et al. from two thousand five is when this book was published, called "Reciprocal Illumination: A Comparison of Agriculture in Humans." And so the comparison is okay. We have these Atian ants who've been farming for fifty million years, fifty million years, five zero million years, and humans who've been farming for ten to twelve thousand years. And uh, what you know? What are some of the comparisons? Uh,
0: so, so question? Yeah, um, are in this? Are you going to describe that farming? Uh, or should we do that in advance of your reading this? Go for it. Um, so uh, the, the basics of the farming involve the removal of pieces. You've undoubtedly seen pictures of ants which have cut a kind of fingernail-shaped piece of a leaf. They do this from canopy trees. They bring them one piece at a time uh, in large numbers down into an underground cavity where they grow a fungus, which is uniquely adapted to this uh, association. It grows on the leaves because the ants are animals. They actually do not, for whatever reason, have the chemical capacity to break down the leaves directly. Fungus, for whatever reason, are much better at uh, advanced feats of organic chemistry, and they are able to break down the cellulose and other components of the leaves. And so, essentially, the... Uh, ants facilitate the growth of the fungus, and they eat the fungus, and uh, this is a clearly mutualistic interaction um, with many fascinating offshoots and other features.
1: Indeed, and there are um, there are many stages of agriculture in these ants. The leaf cutters being you know by our estimation with our anthropomorphic lens on it the, the pinnacle of atine agriculture of ant agriculture uh, but there are there are many stages that are you know less tightly symbiotic there are um, pathogens that are also co-evolved with you know with this fungus ant co-evolution so you know it's it's just the story just goes more and more amazing the deeper you go, but this is not um, going to be that <laughs> that story here. Um, the paragraph I want to read from this paper, Schultz et al. 2005, and I'll have you show my screen when I'm when I'm ready to read it here, just talks about the question of um, where who has the control. So with humans, uh, we imagine that okay, well we're the farmers, therefore you know the the. The crops that we have domesticated, be they plant or animal or in some cases fungus, are clearly under our control. We are the masters, and uh, you can similarly look at ants and guess the same thing. And there's some evidence with regard to the ants, given uh, what the uh, what we can tell. 50 million years is a long time for this association to be happening, so it's hard to know, it's impossible to know exactly what the ants 50 million years ago who were not farming looked like and what they were eating, but all evidence suggests that they were basically eating arthropods, insects, live and dead. Um, and the advantages to the fungus and to the ants for going into this sort of farming relationship um, seem, it seems like there's some evidence that actually the fungus may have had um, more of a drive to end up being in this association with the ants than the ants did, which raises questions about control. About You know, who's actually in control here? And when you think you see a system in which one or the other person, organism, system, whatever it is, is in control, maybe look more closely, look from a different angle, and find that actually control has a lot of different levers and a lot of different ways of manifesting itself. So let's go with this uh this paragraph here and I'll just put it on the screen so people can read along.
0: That did not work.
1: Nope, that did not um, work. And if it doesn't uh it doesn't work. Hold on, let's work.
0: try one more time. You got that plugged in.
1: It is plugged in still. Nope. It's very blue. Okay. Well, I'm going to go ahead and unplug that so that I do not risk my computer suddenly showing up. Uh, and I will just read it off the screen and I'll, I'll, link to, uh, I'll link to this in the show notes. Again, from Schultz et al. 2005. We suspect that most readers will resist our suggestion that human agriculturalists were once under the partial control of their proto-domesticates during the early evolutionary process that ultimately led to human agriculture. Human intuition suggests that we are not under the control of the cabbages and tomatoes that we plant in our backyards, that cabbages cannot facultatively escape from our gardens and from their inevitable destinies of death in our kitchens, and that cabbages have not enslaved us to labor on their evolutionary behalf. Human intuition can be misleading, however. We know, for example, that human symbionts can sometimes induce profound behavioral changes in humans that benefit the symbiont. The rabies virus induces drastic aggressive behavior to facilitate its spread to new potential hosts. And coca plants induce in humans a physical addiction and a craving for more coca, which requires the cultivation of more coca plants. Though seemingly far-fetched and in conflict with our intuitions, we cannot at this point rule out similar manipulations during the pre-agricultural evolution of humans, a stage when humans began to assemble the behavioral repertoires that ultimately led to agricultural systems guided by human planning and intentional experimentation. This I wanted to just put out there for people who have not given farming much thought, given ant farming much thought, ant, ant agriculture much much thought, as a way, as a different way in to being able to question of any system that you think you understand, who is actually uh, pulling the strings, who's actually calling the shots.
0: Um, yeah, I, I want to, uh, there's one thing in that paragraph that I find troubling. The use of rabies as an example, mm-hmm. right after the term symbiont, because yeah. rabies is clearly not <laughs> a symbiont. Yep. Um, and so, you know, I think it's a very worthy exploration. But it, yeah,
1: so symbiont, it's not. Um, but is it, um, is it able to exert a behavioral of influence course. on us? Of course it is.
0: Of course. Yes. And, you know, the case of uh, coca. coca is a better example mm-hmm. where it is likely a mutualism. Um, And there are many examples of uh, human mutualisms. There are plants which are only known from human cultivation, which suggests that uh, an ancestor uh, changed radically in order to partner with humans. Um, What are you thinking of? uh, Salvia.
1: So there's lots of salvias, but the salvia that is used um, as, a, as a psychoactive, as a, yeah, an entheogen. as an entheogen
0: uh, in central Mexico is only known from the gardens of the, the population that utilizes it. It's a mm. fascinating uh, plant. Um, there is a, uh, a euphorb in Madagascar, which is only known from gardens. It's not clear whether that's a, a mutualism or whether it's simply gone extinct in the wild and been preserved by people. But mm-hmm. in any case, there, there are a number of examples. And I do think, you know, evolutionarily, I would say the real question, effectively, what you have to realize is that a mutualism tends to start as a parasitism. And a parasitism that does not harm, but in fact in some indirect way helps the creature being parasitized is almost immediately a mutualism, because the creature that is being parasitized, but oh, it ends up being a net positive thing. Then becomes augmented to facilitate this interaction, yeah. and you know, if you think about the 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 classic case of something like uh, a hummingbird, um, you know, uh, taking nectar and transporting pollen for a flower to which it is adapted, it seems like oh, they're cooperating. But of course, the hummingbird is truly indifferent to the well-being of the plant, um, at least first order. And at least first order at least important. first order right. and the plant is indifferent to the hummingbird they are each taking advantage of each other and because they are both getting a benefit that outweighs the cost that they are paying we say oh it's a cooperation and there's nothing wrong with that in fact
1: well and the, the tighter the cooperation the tighter the need right I right mean, as, so I mean this this will be the thing that maybe isn't obvious to people who haven't considered for instance a hummingbird plant affiliation which is that um you know the the more tight the for instance corolla of the flower is the particular recurved nature decurved nature can't remember which is which of the hummingbird's beak uh the the more both of those species actually depend on the other in order to make it into the future to right, have their genes make it into the future,
0: and there, you know, there's uh, a lot of nuance here. It can be that the plant is uh, obligate with respect to what pollinator it needs, and that the pollinator might be a generalist. In some cases, there can be cases where the relationship is obligate on both sides. Mm-hmm. But in any case. At some point where a mutualism has occurred, we are effectively defining the mutualism based on the fact that both parties are um, benefiting from what might otherwise be a one-way parasitism. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is, in some sense, our projection onto it. And uh, in any case, you know, it's clear that these ants, uh, and I actually I wish we did have the ability to show your screen and you could show some pictures of this, but these plants are a major force uh in these plants th- these ants okay. are a major force <laughs> yeah. in the habitats where they're yep. um, doing their farming they're actually significantly altering the amount of photosynthetic capacity of the trees that they're utilizing mm-hmm. um and so that they're they're a tremendously powerful ecological phenomenon and um what that also means is that this huge amount of productivity that the that the trees were producing that the ants had no access to directly, they have found a way to access it through what might have been a parasite on their ancestors, but it turned out to be beneficial. Right? In other words, um, you know, you could imagine a fungus growing inside. I have no idea if this is the proposed mechanism, but you know, uh, that there might have been uh, a fungus growing inside the effectively caverns that these animals. Created, maybe it was growing on arthropods. Maybe it was, you know, I, I'm not sure what it was. And you can imagine maybe ants had, uh, you know, tunneled into some place where there was leaf matter or something, and some fungus is breaking down the leaves. You could see how you could get to a place where actually feeding the fungus would uh, emerge from the accidental fact of a fungus um, growing on on cellulose. And um, but at the point that we arrive currently and we look at this highly uh, uh interwoven set of adaptations right mm-hmm. you have a fungus that can't grow without the ants you've got ants that are utterly dependent on the fungus that you've got behaviors in which
1: that's true what you just and I had not said that um at, at this point the fungus that the ants are farming is obligately in association with ant fungiculture. It does not exist outside of the ant fungiculture, which is remarkable.
0: It is remarkable. And so then that leads to this consideration, right? I'm always troubled by people's sense that, um, you know, vegetarianism is a favor to the creatures that we eat. Mm -hmm. It is no such thing. Um, especially for the creatures that we cultivate in large numbers, right? Chickens are far better off uh, evolutionarily than their jungle fowl ancestors. Cows are far better off than their wild relatives um, just by virtue of the amount of control that humans exert on the ecosystem. And so although it's counterintuitive to
1: us... So the place that you will get dragged for saying that is that um, you haven't defined better off. You were talking about evolutionarily better off um, individuals might also be, but not in a factory farming situation
0: oh and this that is the place where i I um, would argue that the harm to the individual animals at the level of suffering is so great that even though evolutionarily even the factory farmed animals are certainly in a better position, that morally we are obligated to um, to confront that problem and to end that practice. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, just as, you know, we're all going to die. It does not, no, I swear it's true. Um, that does not cause you, it does not invalidate your life, right? It does not make you not want to live while you're here. Likewise, an animal that is going to be slaughtered for food is not, you know, a non-animal. It's an animal with a Known end of its life, just as a salmon, uh, Pacific salmon has a known end of its life right after it reproduces. Um, so, anyway, the point is, we need to rethink these things because, from the you know perspective of the organisms in question, the interests are not intuitively obvious to us humans.
1: Well, and I think I think one of the pieces you didn't say there is that um, most of our domesticated uh, food animals. <clears throat> Most of those individuals, if not all of those individuals, would not exist but for the fact of our having domesticated them. Mm. So the fact that they will die in service of being eaten by humans uh, <clears throat> basically starts starts the analysis too late. If if you're really if you're concerned about the lifespan of the individual, consider that the individual never would have existed at all. Never yep. would have existed at all.
0: Yep, and that that's exactly it. Um, and. Um, so anyway when we get back to the ants what we've got is an obligate relationship and that obligate relationship is clearly great for the ants and it is you know clearly great for the fungus in fact it's so great that both of them have evolved to become completely dependent on it and so at this point there's no point in looking at the relationship and saying who's you know, who, who's driving? They're both driving, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't mean if you traced it back far enough, you would almost certainly find a parasitism that turned out to have a benefit for the victim and therefore a mutualism grew from it.
1: And, you know, if, if only because it is statistically very unlikely that two clades, two individuals, two anythings coming together um, that end up in a cooperative, romantic, what you know, whatever it is, relationship, have exactly the same moment of, hey, here it is. Yep. This is this is what we're gonna do, right? Yep. So almost always, and we can basically say, really almost, almost, almost always, if not always, one of those individuals or clades or. Entities will have made a move first. Will have had an advantage first. Will have seen the opportunity first.
0: Right, and this is. I was. I was actually having a parallel thought. Actually, Um, the way to see this clearly is the romantic analog of this, Mm -hmm. right? Because, a, you can see that individuals are motivated to get involved romantically by a very powerful kind of self-interest, which is so powerful that it. Uh, predisposes them to a kind of mutualism Mm -hmm. but the let's take the case of uh, two randos right considering whether to get romantically involved right
1: (laughs) you make it sound so awesome (laughs)
0: uh yeah i'm trying i'm trying to uh to not impose anything one way or the other on it um a guy uh trying to bed a gal is actually involved in a parasitic behavior now in modern times it may not be this way because it may be that he you know his conscious mind full well understands that she is going to control whether or not she gets pregnant and so there's no real parasitism possible at that level but a guy trying to bed a gal pre um uh, birth control right is effectively attempting to inflict a pregnancy on somebody who will then invest all of the labor in raising an offspring that is only 50% related to her. That's a parasitism, right? However, the possibility of a relationship that is reproductive and worthy of both partners, right? The point is that would-be parasitism is adjacent to a obvious profound mutualism in which two people decide to team up on the raising of offspring and the creation of a home and all of those um, things. And, you know, we sometimes hear people almost jokingly talk about the... um, a fetus being a parasite on the mother, which is not correct, but it is actually half correct in the case that the father has not stuck around, right? Mm -hmm. Because the female has been put in the position of raising an offspring. You know, she's divided her genome in half, fused it with a half a genome from somebody else. And if that guy skips out, then the point is the half the genome that isn't related to her that she is raising, that is, uh, she is effectively forced into a a degree of altruism, raising this other half a genome. But if they partner, then it is not that at all, right? Then the point is, yes, she's only, you know, her offspring is only 50% related to her, but um, the guy is putting in enough effort that the point is she can actually raise twice as many many of them, and she recovers that as, as a matter of a mutualism. So anyway, now we've taken all the fun out of uh, sex, romance uh, and all of that stuff. But the idea that there is an exact map of this sort of tension between parasitism and mutualism over in human romantic space is it's really profound once you see it.
1: Mm hmm. Dean, I thought you were going to go into genomic imprinting space, but maybe maybe that's that's a bridge too far for today yeah,
0: I think I think uh right. we've done enough enough of the dry sucking the fun out of romance biology for uh for one afternoon, but maybe a future episode
1: all right um so we thought we'd start there just to raise issues of right raised consciousness questions of. When you see interactions um, between two players, let's say, let's just leave it vague, entities, uh, it, who appears to be control, who appears to be driving, who appears to be conscious, who appears to be making decisions that benefit them, um, isn't? it's not always what it seems. And that is in service of what you wanted to talk about uh next around issues of narrative control
0: yeah so i wanted to add one more thing which i think is a good transition okay not always what it seems right Mm -hmm. in the case of ants right the queen the queen is named as if she is the boss of everybody else and It's not obvious that that was actually a proper description. Yes, the colony is acting in service of the queen, but in some sense, she is as much a slave of the colony as she is its director. She is not actually in a position to dictate um, what the ants do. It is this underlying uh, genetic fact of their close relatedness that causes them to behave in such a way that this queen who is totally hobbled by
1: her She's just an egg factory. Yeah, she's She's just producing... Mostly, mostly daughters, some some sons, but mostly daughters, all of whom are more closely related to each other um, than they are to their mom. Yeah, uh, if they're full sibs, and uh, she's just pumping out eggs,
0: pumping some, out eggs.
1: Them, when they're fertilized, they're daughters. When they're not fertilized, they're sons, and and it's just that's that's what she's doing. And day you can, in, day out,
0: you can get a totally wrong idea. In fact, I had the um, once-in-a-lifetime pleasure of watching a uh, mm. a colony of these um these ants these farming ants move from one uh one burrow to another and probably that was a result of the fact that something had gotten in and they needed to move in order to escape a parasite but i watched them uh uh, hubert uh who was on bci when i was there studying leafcutter ants knew that the move was happening and he and i went and uh Filmed it, but anyway, the point was, the queen was being moved, right? We saw the queen being moved. She was so distorted by her reproductive role, she couldn't even walk, right? She was literally being carried, and you can imagine that early, you know, scientific appreciators of these ants might look at like it's like a queen and a litter being escorted to her new, uh, her new um, nest, but that's really that's a projection of a human construct that is really not very similar, right? Mm-hmm. She is a reproductive slave uh, of the colony as much as anything else. So, which then brings us to your transition about things not being necessarily what they seem and the confusion surrounding um, uh, corruption and narrative control in, uh, in our modern, modern circumstance. So, uh, let's explore that a little bit. I was prompted to think of this by, uh, we will only be here briefly, but uh, I watched the most recent interview of Sam Harris, and he once again makes all of the same, uh, what I would say are decidedly wrong points, but uh, the point that in the case that 97%, I think, is the number he uses of your Experts agree and 3% uh, disagree that, yes, of course, it's always possible that the non-experts are right, but you should go with the 97% of the experts each and every time because you're um, you, you're much more likely to be correct in your thinking. And so that's obviously nuts, or I should say it, the fact is obviously nuts, but why it's nuts isn't so obvious, and I thought it was worth mm-hmm. us exploring that a little bit. So, um, first of all, let me just recall something that we've talked about here before, which is um, that it is a if the the return on investment for betting against the fringe is pretty reliable, right? In general, the fringe isn't right and. Um, even when it is right, it's that something within the fringe is right while the majority of the fringe remains wrong, right? The fringeness of the fringe Mm -hmm. uh, is in and of itself reason to just be a little skeptical. That's Mm -hmm. certainly true. Um, But what Sam's assertion does not take into account is A, the disproportionate benefit of knowing when something on the fringe is actually right, in spite of the belief of 97% or 99% or effectively 100% of the experts, right? In those cases where the experts have it wrong, mm-hmm. the profit to be made is huge. That's one thing. Um, but the other thing is there's a question about what that 97% even is, right? Under normal circumstances, if everybody was perfectly free to believe whatever they wanted and the experts were having vigorous discussions in which they were pushing each other around and had arrived somewhere naturally, then that's not perfect evidence that they've got it right. But it's at least something. But we don't live in a normal era. And this is really... I think what's driving Sam mad in front of our eyes is that he is applying rules from some other time and place as if they are universal and they are far from universal. So, um what I wanted what I thought was that it was worth laying out a kind of taxonomy of uh of narrative brokenness, right? And looking at what underlies um, the, uh, the differences between times and places and what we ought to put, uh, how much stock we ought to put in the belief of so-called experts. So I think everybody realizes that we have a degree of corruption. Sam would acknowledge, and in fact he repeatedly does acknowledge, um, that, that there is corruption in our institutions and that that's a problem. But the problem is that the word corruption itself suggests that it is the minor force, right? If we say that, you know, you have an SD card mm. and there's, it's corrupted, we're not saying that most of what's on the SD card is wrong. We're saying that there is a small disruption somewhere, right? And that small disruption may be enough to prevent your camera from reading it, right? Or it may distort a photograph or, you know, photograph may not be viewable. But the point is the corruption is the minor part. And the question is, are there things that would cause the distortion to be the major part? Um, So, okay, corruption is like, you know, well, let's try this. In the case that the interests of some entity that could corrupt the system are aligned with the interests of the public. In other words, if you have a democracy where the interests of the public are supposed to, to guide and you have some corporation, and it wants something done that would actually be good for the public, there's no problem. It doesn't really have to do anything. It can just make the argument, and the public, seeing its own interest, will be in support of the thing that works for the corporation. What that means is that the efforts that these corporations deploy, the expensive efforts, like lobbying, for example, those efforts will be in places where their interests diverge from the public right? It will corrupt the government, not where it doesn't need to do that. It will corrupt the government where it wants the government not to do the government's job serving the public, but instead to serve the corporate needs. And so it will disguise those things as oh. if they are in the interest of the public.
1: I'm going to steal man just one, one piece of this, sure. uh, which is that um, lobbying could be simply about getting the word out. So even you know, even under circumstances where all the interests align, which will be somewhat rare, uh, you might still have things like promotion, marketing, advertisement, lobbying in order to spread the good word, frankly.
0: Um, I agree at a technical level. Mm-hmm. Um the the problem with that, I mean, you you you've said you're steel manning it, so I know you're not advocating this as a as a, a major uh countervailing force. But the problem is it doesn't take almost anything to spread the word if it's in the interest of people to hear the word, right? If uh, you're a representative in Congress and there's some piece of legislation that would be beneficial to both your constituents and to some power power player then it doesn't take very much to get that in front of you because hey it's a win for you even cynically it's a win for you to mm-hmm. advance the cause you'll make yourself more likely to be reelected. you'll have greater power etc um and so likewise you know you can say look there are two reasons for advertising to exist Advertising exists to manipulate people into doing things that they wouldn't otherwise do, spending money they wouldn't otherwise spend or choosing this thing over that thing. Um, And you could say, well, part of advertising is just getting information out. And the answer is, yep, but sit in front of your TV sometime and figure out what percentage of each ad is actually about information and what percentage is about manipulation and you'll realize oh my goodness the lion's share of this thing is absolutely about manipulating people and the information you know sort of squeaks in there every now and again Um, so i think it's like that Mm -hmm. it's not that there's no you know a lobbyist could potentially just alert a lawmaker this thing is possible and might be good. Um, But more or less what they do, really, the reason they're paid the big bucks is to pretend that that's what they're doing while in fact they are incentivizing and manipulating and lying and all of the things that they're so good at. But okay, we got corruption, right? Corruption takes a system that is supposed to be rigged around the interests of the population and it distorts it, right, a little bit. Then we have the next uh, piece of this taxonomy, which is capture. Right now, capture. I want to be careful. Capture is a term that often comes with another term, regulatory capture. Right now, in my opinion, that's too narrow. Regulatory capture is real, and that means that an industry or a company uh, has gotten control over some entity that is supposed to be controlling it. Right when a pharma company gets control of the FDA, right. It, that has that's the tail wagging the dog. The FDA is supposed to be protecting us from pharma. It's supposed to be exerting control over them, and the reverse has happened. Um, So that's regulatory capture. But what we are seeing is something much broader than that, right? Because a lot of the things that have been captured aren't regulatory, right? So anyway, when corruption is the minor force, corruption is the right term. Capture is when some entity within the system, some institution or process has been taken over by something that is supposed to be subservient to it, right? And then there's this next phase where it's not even that the FDA has been captured by pharma, but it is actually a whole network of institutions that then uh, have an emergent nature, right? The FDA has been captured and the FDA may grant uh, emergency use authorization where it shouldn't. It may participate in silencing critics, right? It may participate in obscuring harms, these kinds of things. These are terrible in and of themselves. But then you find, you know, the New York Times playing wingman. Yes, you do. Right? And so... This is like a whole next level. Not only are we dealing, so corruption is the minor version, where the major version is still doing what the system is designed to do, but it has been redirected to a small extent. You've got capture, where entire institutions have been inverted, and they are doing the inverse job. They are working for those they are supposed to be regulating and regulating those they are supposed to be working for. And then you have this next level thing, which is the emergence of a network of institutions that are captured by one mechanism or another. And what it results is in a, an entire false narrative about where we are, what we face, what the experts believe, which is really the place where the analysis that says, hey, let's go with the experts, that usually works, right? We don't know what the experts believe. Because as you and I keep discovering, every time you have a conversation where you confess your actual beliefs on these things, you find that people don't hold the beliefs that they have been espousing, right? They, to one degree or another, have private suspicions that they haven't been sharing, things that they would get punished if they said them out loud. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we are living in a hall of mirrors that goes even beyond a world where you imagine regulatory capture has happened, right? Why is the New York Times participating in the same story that the captured FDA is advancing, right? How did that happen? How is there no possibility of real journalism? How does it have to happen in a tweet thread or on Substack, right, rather than in the New York Times and the Washington Post and, you know, uh, the New York Post or whatever other... uh, papers. I guess the New York Post has done a certain amount, but it's also been silenced for doing it. Mm-hmm. Um all right, so that's the general the general taxonomy.
1: Yep. And uh you know, to your point about the New York Times playing wingman, we have a beautiful example this week. All right. Shall we yeah, um, let's, share some of that? Let's this do it. Um, I was hoping to share my screen for some of this, so I'm just gonna be reading it and again we will share uh the links uh in the show notes. But um the New York Times uh, reported basically raccoon dogs for the win. It's their fault. COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, it's it's the raccoon dogs after all. But uh, not frozen this time. No, not frozen. It's the fault of those crazy Chinese people who trade them. Now, now it's not racist, right, to blame the Chinese people and their trade of wildlife that they definitely shouldn't be trading. Now, Now this is the honorable thing. So the New York Times, in their article, headlined new data links pandemics origins to raccoon dogs at Wuhan market, which came out on the 16th, March 16th, two days ago. The first paragraph reads an international team of virus experts, just up there. An international team of virus experts. An international team of virus experts said on Thursday that they had found genetic data from a market in Wuhan, China, linking the coronavirus with raccoon dogs for sale there, adding evidence to the case that the worst pandemic in a century could have been ignited by an infected animal that was being dealt through the illegal wildlife trade. And you have to go down pretty far in the article to discover that the players involved are a lot of the same players that we've become familiar with. Now, it's Christian Anderson leading up the team. He's one of the international members of the international team of virus mm-hmm. experts. And then you have playing sort of, well, wingman to the wingman is Angela Rasmussen. Um, and it's just, you know, the same people with the same conclusions over and over and over again. And this New York Times article is actually particularly bad. But as it turns out, they just borrowed most of it from The Atlantic. Uh, so uh, we've talked before about The Atlantic Monthly's reporting on SARS-CoV-2, which has been abominable. And they've got this small team of three or four um, happens-to-be-all-women reporters that are just doing this, like, gossipy, coffee-clatch stuff that sort of sounds sciencey, but really never is.
0: The abominable snow job
1: the abominable snow job indeed um so uh it's one of them again um in the atlantic writing um and so we talked about this explicitly uh in november of 2021 on episode 105 what's going on at the atlantic um but they are still at it so here i'm going to and again wish i could show you my screen here but read you just some uh, highlighted sections from the atlantic article called The Strongest Evidence Yet that an Animal Started the Pandemic. A New Analysis of Genetic Samples from China Appears to Link the Pandemic's Origin to Raccoon Dogs by Catherine J. Wu. This was published uh, somehow the same day as the New York Times article was published, even though the New York Times cites The Atlantic as having been the source of this. See
0: earlier point Mm -hmm. about the weird coordination Mm -hmm. across institutions.
1: Yes, indeed. Updated um, the following day, that is to say yesterday, March 17th. I don't know what was updated. Um, But... Yeah there's this whole piece is worth reading if you can stomach it but I've just I'm just going to read the highlighted the pieces that I've highlighted here This re- oh actually I'll uh- I'll start with, you know, what is the evidence anyway? Like, what has happened that we are now so certain that it's raccoon dogs of a origin, right? This must,
0: must be powerful evidence.
1: Oh, it's powerful. It's going to be powerful. For three years now, the article begins. The debate, this is the article by Wu in the Atlantic Monthly published this week. For three years now, the debate over the origins of the coronavirus pandemic has ping-ponged between two big ideas, that SARS-CoV-2 spilled into human populations directly from a wild animal source and that the pathogen leaked from a lab. Through a swirl of data obfuscation by Chinese authorities and politicalization within the United States, and rampant speculation from all corners of the world, many scientists have stood by the notion that this outbreak, like most others, had purely natural roots. But that hypothesis has been missing a key piece of proof, genetic evidence from the Hunan Seafood Wholesale Market in Wuhan, China, showing that the virus had infected creatures for sale there. Now, an international team of virologists, genomicists, and evolutionary biologists, may have finally found crucial data to help fill that knowledge gap. A new analysis of genetic sequences collected from the market shows that raccoon dogs being illegally sold at the venue could have been carrying and possibly shedding the virus at the end of 2019. Let me just slow down here. A new analysis of genetic sequences collected from the market shows that raccoon dogs being illegally sold at the venue could have been carrying and possibly shedding the virus at the end of 2019. Wait. Okay. It's some of the strongest support yet. Experts told me that the pandemic began when SARS-CoV-2 hopped from animals into humans rather than an accident among scientists experimenting with viruses. This really strengthens the case for a natural origin, says Seema Lakdawala, apologies for the pronunciation, a virologist at Emory University who wasn't involved in the research. Angela Rasmussen, a virologist involved in the research told me, "This is a really strong indication that animals at the market were infected. There's really no other explanation." That makes any sense.
0: Really, Angie?
1: <laughs> Shall I go on? Do you want to inter- inter- well, first before I... Well, I think there, I, there are a couple th- there's things There's a lot here. more to say, but yeah.
0: Um, one, the idea that this is the strongest evidence yet mm. may actually be true, even though there is really essentially no evidence here other than the presence of the animal in the location that they want us to believe it
1: started in. And there's some, and and we'll get here, but there's some sequences that have um, the, you know, the genome of the raccoon dog and um, the genome of the virus that show up in the same place.
0: Right. Right. At the the same time. Ish. Right. The kind of evidence that implies that the people in the world trade center may have brought it down themselves (laughs)
1: because
0: their DNA was present in the crime scene, but you know, But Mm. also notice the linguistic turn of phrase there where the point is what we've been waiting for is evidence that it came from the Wuhan lab. I mean, the the, uh, Wuhan seafood market.
1: Yes. Yes. That is the piece that is missing. That is the piece. And my God, there's so much here. Like, as far as I can tell, like, this this is the scientific evidence at this point. There's not even a frickin' paper to look at. Oh. There's nothing. It's not, it's not, oh, it's only on a preprint server. Like, no, it doesn't exist yet.
0: Well, it doesn't exist yet. And yet you have two major publications trumpeting it. And yeah. we've seen this before with COVID. We saw yep. this with the TOGETHER trial that supposedly uh, showed that ivermectin was ineffective against COVID, where we had that result Six months before we were able to look at the methodology of the paper that was trumpeted in major headlines. That's right. That's right. And so this is not even unpeer reviewed, right? You've got peer-reviewed where something has been scrutinized and then it is presented to the public. You've got unpeer reviewed where it's put on a preprint server and nobody has scrutinized it ahead of time. And but it's presented
1: got, so that other scientists and anyone else who wants to can assess. Yes. There's no assessment possible
0: It's here. not possible. The point is what they've yes. done is they've decided to give us the conclusion in advance of us being able to scrutinize how they reached it, which suggests that that conclusion may not be based on a robust methodology.
1: Why would they want to do that, though? Why would they want to start with a conclusion? What possible interest could they have in starting with a conclusion?
0: Interesting. Now, some people will remember that Christian Anderson was, in fact, initially the person who called Anthony Fauci's attention to the fact that the genome of the virus in question was, in his words, inconsistent with predictions from evolutionary theory from a natural origin. Fauci then in some way. But he's per- seen the light. Well, he has seen he has seen the light. For those of you just listening, mm-hmm. I'm making that gesture that people make when they're handling money. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, Does anyone actually do that with money though? I-
0: have never seen film of Christian Anderson doing this but there is actually evidence of a tremendous amount of money having flowed to him yes. to his boss Eric Topol yes that Eric Topol mm. uh, at the Scripps Institute
1: that's an expert i can really get behind trusting can't you
0: um i am okay. i am somewhat behind in trusting mm-hmm. Eric Topol i just think he may have a conflict of interest um the size of a you know the international space station but um anyway the idea that we are being told you know that you have multiple journalistic sources that are reporting it's so urgent A yeah. It's yeah. so urgent that we know the conclusion from this study that they have to publish on it before we're even allowed to look at it.
1: Well, that Department of Energy stuff that came out and said, like, actually, we, and we're not sure at all, but like, it really kind of seems like it could be a lab leak. They, they had to get right on top of that. So here we have these sort of glowing endorsements in pseudoscience-y language. Uh, and, you know, the I don't know the, I'm not, I, I have never run into, as far as I know, before the work of the author of the New York Times piece. But this, like, The Atlantic just created this stable of pseudoscience journalists reporting on pseudoscience that... Did their work over and over and over and over again during this pandemic, during the whole for the last three years, and they just haven't veered. They just have not looked outside of their their lane. Yeah, you know, they picked the lane and they are staying in it. And there's nothing to indicate that that lane is reflective of reality or truth. Shall I read a few more bits from? Absolutely. From this? It's a long article. Um, the genetic sequences were pulled out of swabs taken in and near market stalls around the pandemic start. So that's the source of the evidence the new analysis led by christian anderson edward holmes and michael worreby three prominent researchers who have been looking into the virus's roots shows that that may not be the case that not may not be the case being um uh sorry uh, no animal host for SARS-CoV-2 can be deduced Within about half a day of downloading the data from GISAID, this is not a database I am familiar with, and so I'm not actually sure how um, it's normally pronounced, but GIS AID, uh, it's an open access genomic database, um, was data were posted there, and uh, this team happened to get lucky and pull it, and then the data disappeared again, and no one can figure out what's going on there. So that also is strange. Maybe everyone just got lucky, maybe. Within about half a day of downloading the data from GISAID, the trio and their collaborators discovered that several market samples that tested positive for SARS CoV 2 were also coming back chock full of animal genetic material, much of which was a match with a common raccoon dog, a small animal related to foxes that has a raccoon like face. Finding the genetic material of virus and mammals so closely commingled, enough to be extracted out of a single swab, isn't perfect proof, Laktawala told me. It's an important step. I'm not going to diminish that, she said. Still, the evidence falls short of, say, isolating SARS-CoV-2 from a free-ranging raccoon dog, or even better, uncovering a viral sample swab from a mammal for sale at Hunan from the time of the outbreak's onset. Still, the findings don't stand alone. Do I believe there were infected animals at the market? Yes, I do, Anderson told me. So this is just a statement of belief. Mm -hmm. It's not based—it's simply a statement of belief. Statement of belief. It's a statement of belief. Do I believe there are infected animals at the market? Yes, I do, Anderson told me. Does this new data add to that evidence base? Yes, end quote. The new analysis builds on extensive previous research that points to the market as the source of the earliest major outbreak of SARS-CoV-2, colon. Here's the evidence she's going to trot out. Many of the earliest known COVID-19 cases of the pandemic were clustered roughly in the market's vicinity, roughly, and the viruses. Genetic material was found in many samples swabbed from carts and animal processing equipment at the venue, as well as parts of nearby infrastructure such as storehouses, sewage wells, and water drains. That's two pieces of evidence, neither of which are evidence, not extensive research. Raccoon dogs, creatures commonly bred for sale in China, are also already known to be one of many mammal species that can easily catch and spread the coronavirus. All of this left one main hole in the puzzle to fill clear cut evidence the raccoon dogs and the virus were in the exact same spot at the market, close enough that the creatures might have been infected and possibly infectious. That's what the new analysis provides. They could really use someone who understands anything about evolution or how viruses might actually move between species, don't you think?
0: No, I think that would screw up their whole plan of selling us the idea that the seafood market is the likely origin of the human pandemic
1: all of this left one main hole in the puzzle to fill right okay think of it as finding the dna of an investigation's main suspect at the scene of the crime (laughs) the findings don't rule out the possibility that other animals may have been carrying SARS-CoV-2 at Hunan raccoon dogs if they were infected may not even be the creatures who passed the pathogen on to us well then why are we talking about them okay that's not in the article Editorializing now, which means the search for the viruses many wild hosts will need to plod on. Do we know the intermediate host was raccoon dogs? No, Anderson wrote to me, using the term for an animal that can ferry a pathogen between other species. Is it high up on my list of potential hosts? Yes, but it's definitely not the only one. So now we're kind of backing off from this giant, like, oh, the New York Times and the Atlantic Monthly is going to tell us that now we have this evidence, it's raccoon dogs, it's raccoon dogs. Well, except maybe not, but it could be. So we've now backed off two thirds of the way or so through this article to "Eh, maybe, but isn't this cool? Quote, at this point, it's still unclear why the sequences were so recently posted to GISAID. They also vanished from the database shortly after the international team of researchers notified the Chinese researchers of their preliminary findings without explanation. They go on and on and on. There's really no explanation. Skeptics. Mm. will likely be eager to poke holes in the team's new findings. Pointing out for instance... I reasons, don't think they
0: need to be poked. I think there are plenty of holes in those findings. They don't require any of us... Skeptic- At
1: fi- Like, we've been shared... Not- we've had nothing shared with us. There's right. no findings, except that we've been told... I'm, I'm, we've
0: I'm been told stop. swabs had DNA from the raccoon dogs yes. and uh, genetic sequences from the virus in close proximity in a market where sick people undoubtedly commingled with animals that they were buying.
1: You sound like a skeptic. <laughs> <Do> Skeptics <I? laughs> will likely be eager to poke holes in the team's new findings, pointing out, for instance, that it's technically possible for genetic material from viruses and animals to end up sloshed together in the environment, even if an infection didn't take place. Maybe an infected human visited the market and inadvertently deposited viral RNA near an animal's crate. But an infected animal with no third-party contamination still seems by far the most plausible explanation for the sample's genetic contents, several experts told me. Other scenarios require contortions of logic, and more important, additional proof. I got... we're almost there. All right. (laughs) The debate over SARS-CoV-2's origins has raged for nearly as long as the pandemic itself. Okay, I don't even get the rest of the sentence. Outlasting lockdowns, widespread masking, even the first version of the COVID-19 of the COVID vaccines. I don't know what that's doing there. And as long as there is murkiness to cling to, it may never fully resolve. When President Joe Biden asked the US intelligence community to review the matter, four government agencies and the National Intelligence Council pointed to a natural origin, while two others guessed that it was a lab leak.
0: Hmm.
1: Okay. Finally, end of this crap piece in The Atlantic. If this new level of scientific evidence does conclusively tip the origins debate toward the animal route, it will be, in one way, a major letdown. It will mean that SARS-CoV-2 breached our borders because we once again mismanaged our relationship with wildlife. That we failed to prevent this epidemic for the same reason we failed, and could fail again, to prevent so many of the rest.
0: Oh, I, frankly, I predicted that. If they manage to sell us on this story that this has a natural origin, then the point is the lesson of the pandemic is the inverse. Not you must not do the kind of research that turns the world upside down. But in fact, you have to do more of that research because we missed it you know by this much. We were studying these viruses, but we didn't get ahead of this thing and it got us anyway. So next time we need to have done much more of this gain of function research in order to be ready. That's what they're going to sell us.
1: It's even worse than that. Oh, yeah. All right. My turn. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, so that for sure, but also don't go out into nature. It's dangerous. There's wild things out there, and they will give you diseases. Stay inside. Be safe. It's clean. We've got some antibacterial spray for you, antiviral spray, anti-everything spray. You just get right in that comfortable little zone of yours. We'll stream some crap into your face that you can watch and be entertained by. But for God's sake, don't go outside dangerous yes
0: don't unplug from our mechanism of narrative control um so i wanted to give an interpretation you you wondered about their claim of the uh natural origin having outlasted something something about uh it just vaccines mass etc etc it's just
1: a weird thing to
0: well but no i know what they're getting
1: at okay in this case the they is a she
0: well, it's, this, it's
1: part of the bigger. It's things, that's
0: see yeah. yeah. earlier point regarding the yeah. emergent nature of the the they she uh, complex that advances the phony narrative. uh <laughs> We're not going to talk
1: about cats again, are we? No, no, no. no down with romance. that for the moment. Okay. No,
0: no. Okay. We're on to um raccoon dogs having. uh
1: Wait, did they have pronouns too?
0: You'll have to ask them, but I will say that this is a major leap forward from the frozen ferret badger stakes. Uh That they failed to convince us Did were he the sort
1: the great leap forward and talking about the origins of this virus
0: uh, <laughs> I guess I mean you know um make of it what you will okay but uh okay, but what really is going on here yeah. is there are a couple of narratives that are disproportionately important, and this is a subtle point, I think, but in some cases. We have succeeded in staring down their garbage narratives, right? Safe and effective is not a phrase you hear regularly used about the vaccines anymore. We're into much more nuanced territory. We're still lagging behind the reality of what is apparent in the data, but um, nonetheless. But there are certain um, there are there are certain narratives with uh, an undead nature Ooh. to them. Right. And I in fact would call the kind of journalism that you're talking about, instead of burying the lead, it's exhuming the lead. They keep resurrecting uh their lead. Their lead exhuming because their lead. they cannot afford to have it die. Right. To the extent that the world is keeps discovering. I mean, we keep getting new agencies, uh you know, people who were on the commission who, uh, you know, Jeffrey Sachs uh, has announced that he he saw nothing but corruption in the commission that was trying to find the origins. We've got all of these things that would ordinarily cause a regular person to say, you know what, that Wuhan seafood market uh, explanation turned out to be nuts. All sorts of people with all sorts of different kinds of expertise have converged on the idea that this does seem to have emerged from the lab right there in Wuhan, um, etc.
1: Outbreak of chocolatey goodness. (laughs) (laughs)
0: right? Um, But the point is they can't afford to let it go. And I don't think that they think they're going to win this one. But I think what they have to do is muddle it, right? This Mm. This is the doubt component of a fear, uncertainty, and doubt campaign. The point is they need to have some alternative that remains live so that the people who have been so thoroughly embarrassed by the failure of that garbage narrative have something to say. Oh, I'm on team atlantic new york times right
1: mm-hmm.
0: i mean don't you know that they found the dna of the you know, uh,
1: actually,
0: raccoon dogs. know I, they found the dna of the raccoon dogs along with genetic material from sars cov2 which raccoon. of course if you're paying attention you know that at the point that these things are being swabbed for in the wuhan seafood market likely the disease had been circulating in wuhan since September or October of 2019, it's no surprise that there was SARS-CoV-2 all over the Wuhan seafood market, which means it's going to be commingled with every single organism that was in that market, right? There's no evidence here. Um, And, you know, much less something that they would let us scrutinize. But but the point is that narrative and the ivermectin turned out not to work narrative, these are two narratives that they are never going to let die. Doesn't matter what the evidence says. They need both of them, right?
1: Yeah. And they've got um, they've got confederates like Rasmussen saying this is a really strong indication that animals at the market were infected. There's really no other explanation that makes any sense. This is as credentialed on point a scientist as you could possibly be, who has made a statement that is so Utterly and transparently ludicrous, and yet here it is. Here it is in the Atlantic. Yep. That statement makes no sense, and yet that that authority saying it will be sufficient for some number of people.
0: Right, and it sounds so full of meaning. No other explanation makes sense. How about somebody with COVID coughed near a raccoon dog?
1: I mean, I mean, how about even in this terrible article, there's uh, there's other. Th- things like even right. this terrible article
0: presents other
1: cannot manage to not admit that actually yes this isn't the only possibility even christian anderson says this isn't this isn't clear proof
0: yeah it's right? the weakest of tea and yeah. you know what's more you know here's some strong evidence we haven't found the wild circulating pandemic in any creature let alone raccoon dogs right so the point is if you really wanted to find this evidence look if you know that Maybe they should hire O.J. to go look for it, basically, right? You know, he's, he hasn't come up with anything on his ex-wife's killer... Right, so he's probably at this point free to go look for the infected raccoon dogs. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I guess my point is, look, nobody really expected O.J. to go looking for the real killer because that would have been a very, you know, annoying experience given what he, he would apparently. Have been at it a long time. Well, and you know, not only at it. It's one thing to search in vain. It's another thing to search for something you know doesn't exist, right? Precisely. And so the point is, look we've had an awful lot of time, much longer than it has taken in any of the previous cases that are in any way analogous to this, to find the intermediate host. And the point is, it's not, you know, not like we don't know what we're looking for. So I do fear that somebody is going to cook it up at some point.
1: Well, and it's interesting, too, that, you know, we have, oh, you know, Anderson's saying, well, you know, it's definitely, you know, at or near, I don't remember exactly what he says, you know, at the top of my list of possible intermediate hosts, but I've got a lot of others. It's like, oh, really, tell us. Because this is the first I've been hearing about raccoon dogs, and I'm sure some other people were talking about it at some point. But like, wasn't it the frozen ferret badger steaks there for a while? Yeah, yeah. and uh, and there are some other possibilities, but um, interesting that in direct contrast to how science is supposed to happen, uh, this is an issue that concerns the entire planet, and there are a list of possible intermediate hosts in the head of the main guy who's got one and only one hypothesis and he will never, ever stray from it. Therefore, it doesn't make it a hypothesis, really. And he's not going to share that with us? Doesn't that make it easier for at the point that they discover some maybe better evidence that, oh, actually, it's, you know, this guy over here, it's, it's a pangolin after all. Ah, yes, well, that was on my list, on my short list that I kept private because Why? Like, to what end? Who wins by that list of possible intermediate hosts being only in the head of the person who has a goal to prove that this was a zoonotic origin as opposed to from the lab?
0: Right. Um, there's nothing There's nothing here, but uh, I, I want to tie this back Go to um, the taxonomy that we were... Building Mm -hmm. okay, because when you get to this emergent layer, right, where you've got narrative control, you've got a storyline that is so fundamental to the power players getting whatever it is that they're trying to accomplish, protecting themselves from uh, uh, taking the blame that they rightly deserve for having triggered this global catastrophe, Mm -hmm. for example, in order for them to avoid responsibility, they need to preserve a story like this. Mm -hmm. They cannot preserve it through any normal means because any normal rules of evidence would tell you that you actually don't have any evidence here. There really isn't any evidence of anything that isn't effectively automatic. Yes, people will have had SARS-CoV-2 in that market and they were selling whatever they were selling, right? So the existence of genetic sequences doesn't tell us one way or another. And as I've pointed out before, You know, if there was a coffee shop on the ground floor of the Wuhan Institute and somebody went around swabbing it and found, you know, evidence of very early versions of the virus, it wouldn't say that the coffee shop had produced it. The point is the coffee shop happens to exist in close proximity to the lab, which is the very likely source, as the seafood market exists in very close proximity to the lab, which is very likely the source, which is the reason that it seems to have been circulating at the Wuhan military games in September, October of 2019. The point is this is circumstantial evidence where you would expect there to be circumstantial evidence. It doesn't narrow down the search at all, right? Right. Now, an infected... uh, Infected ferret badger or infected raccoon dog would a population of infected raccoon dogs. But I mean, would. The,
1: the, again, we don't have actually the scientific evidence in front of us. But the article says actually it's already known. It was already known that um, coronaviruses or maybe this one I don't remember, um, can, you know, do circulate in raccoon dogs. Like, okay, that's that's valuable piece of information. Now that doesn't tell us that it's that it's circulating in the population or that it can it is it is moving between them. No, right? I
0: mean in in fact to say that, you know, coronaviruses are known to circulate in raccoon dogs doesn't mean anything. Coronaviruses circulate in people. Yeah. Right? Um, we're talking about a very odd coronavirus with some very odd genetic anomalies, and the point is you want to find something that is plausibly a descendant of an early ancestor of this virus circulating in raccoon dogs, either Mm -hmm. in the wild or uh, in uh, captivity, and, you know, again, I fear that somebody is going to cook this up, right? And we are going to depend on sleuths to make sure that it's actually a real instance rather than something somebody has generated to get Anthony Fauci off the hook. Yeah. But um,
1: let me just, I found, I found the, the quote yep. um, from, this is again from the Atlantic Monthly's article published this week. Raccoon dogs, creatures commonly bred for sale in China, are also already known to be one of many mammal species that can easily catch and spread the coronavirus. Yeah. That's the sentence, which written badly, yes, written badly intentionally or unintentionally. Who's to say? But from that sentence, we cannot tell. We do not know anything about the coronavirus. There's not the coronavirus. Yeah, There's
0: not a the coronavirus. What's more, um, as far as I know, that statement to the extent that it could be narrowed to something meaningful like, hey, here's an animal that actually transmits this coronavirus isn't right. Right, because there are a wide variety of animals that have contracted SARS-CoV two, but in terms of those who are capable of transmitting it to people, the list is tiny. It's really are
1: raccoon dogs like mink in this regard, which would be something. And uh, boy, like for those who will say, well, you know, why are you picking on this? This is this is part of the point, right? Literally, there's no science out there yet. There is nothing written that has been shared publicly. And, you know, we, along with many others, have been taken to task for talking about um, papers that are posted on preprint servers that haven't yet been peer reviewed. There is no paper. There is no Research. There is no write-up, there is no ability to analyze what has happened, except for these two articles, both of which are basically borrowing from one another and which rely on interviews with with sources that are known, at least in one case, at least in the case of the author of the Atlantic article, to already be long-time friendly with these same sources who will not stray from their conclusion, regardless of what other evidence shows up. This is not it's not
0: science and you know you can actually one thing that struck me i read the new york times version of this um was that one of the authors of this paper that does not exist is confident that raccoon dogs existed in the stall from which these swabs were taken in 2014 when he happened to be there right yeah
1: i know like really what were you
0: this is, it's, this is anecdotal nonsense. The idea that that constitutes some kind of evidence worth reporting in the New York Times about some paper that we haven't seen and can't see. Look, we know, right, the, the cold fusion episode, right? The problem was they went to the press before there was anything to scrutinize, right? We know that this is a no-no. Journalistically speaking, they shouldn't do this for a reason. Now, that's very different than a preprint. A preprint in which... At the point yes. that the conclusion emerges, we can also scrutinize the methodology.
1: Mm-hmm. And, right? that's, and, it's, and, it's, and it's good because all of us can scrutinize it as opposed to, oh, well, it's been peer reviewed, therefore you can trust that it's already been vetted. Well, it's been vetted by people who may or may not have had a perverse incentive to either actually definitely um, let that get published or definitely not let that get published. Right. So the preprint servers, I mean, we've talked about this, you know, three years ago, three years ago and, you know, two years and 11 months ago and two years and 10 months ago, like, you know, at, in the spring of 2020, it was the wild west in terms of the preprint servers. And it was amazing because so much was available. And no, you couldn't keep up. No, you couldn't read everything, just as you can't read all the stuff that's peer reviewed. But what you knew was the stuff that was out there um, that was on preprint servers, you could assess for yourself. And maybe you had the skills and maybe you didn't, uh, But at least it didn't have an additional level of editorial control between you and your ability to assess, which if the editors are great and if the peer reviewers are great, then fine, that'll help. That'll help you not have to wade through so much of the chaff to get to the wheat. But as we know, back to your point, right, about the capture, and the corruption and the ways that you have wingmen effectively playing you know entities playing wingman to you know the desire to not have the truth come out we have we have a problem that is multivariate and deeper than i think almost any of us could have imagined
0: right and you know there's i did not see any mention of why it is they were reporting the conclusion before the emergence of the paper. Now, if the paper is ready to go enough that the reporters could have looked at it and decided for themselves whether it was worth reporting, they could put it on a preprint server, right? And they could say, this paper, which is now going through peer review, right, but is available here in its preprint version, they could have done that. And they didn't do that, and that is a tell. And the tell is what we want is the report. In other words, the report in The Atlantic and The New York Times are the purpose of this research, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. The research itself is beside the point. And in fact, (coughs) stalling and delaying so that we can't scrutinize it and then predicting that, oh, well, certainly skeptics will emerge. Geez, maybe you did crappy research. And of course, you know that the skeptics are going to come after you because they're going to notice that it was crappy because there's so much riding on it and there will be lots of scrutiny. Mm Mm-hmm. And so the point is, yeah, announce your conclusion, predict skeptics, and then later on down the road, I guess we'll get to see this paper and find out what fucked up bullshit you actually did, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Which is uh, a remarkable place to be. The New York Times and the Atlantic should be calling bullshit on this
1: rather than amplifying it. Um, Yeah, who's... I don't know I was going to say, like, whose pocket are you in? But, like... This isn't what you guys stand for. This, this, the New York Times, the Atlantic Monthly, this is not what you stand for. Well? This is not what you claim to stand for and should be standing for.
0: If you're journalists. We, it's we not. need,
1: we need a, a, an open and free press. And instead, we have sentences like: Four government agencies, the National Intelligence Council pointed to a natural origin while two others guessed that it was a lab leak. Pointed guessed sorry
0: um one last point yeah uh in this taxonomy right where you go from corruption to the capture of an institution to the control over some larger piece of the system which you know the journalists are doing the bidding of the pharmaceutical companies and the you know corrupt head of uh governmental agencies etc there is a question about how that emergent phenomenon happens. And certainly some of it, right, when we scratch the surface and we see that Christian Anderson and Eric Topol um, have both been greatly uh, enriched and just so happen to hold positions that are consistent with um, the powerful corrosive entity, right, we can say, oh, well, I think maybe I understand that. But then there's lots of people who are a little hard to explain, right? (laughs) And I wanted to just point out that because we're dealing with an emergent phenomenon, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to abide by a single mechanism. It doesn't have to be that there's some coordinating entity that reached out to a bunch of people and you know, figured out who was willing to do its bidding and whatever else. What it can be is that people get very good at figuring out how to get remunerated, how to get paid. And mm-hmm. paid doesn't have to be in money. It can be in social credibility, it can be reputation, it can be positions at institutions that are ascendant, whatever. Opportunities. Um, But essentially there's like a gradient of well-being. And if you take certain positions and your life starts getting better because some powerful entity takes notice that you are doing its bidding and it decides to protect you and reward you and do all of those things, then you can get a vast network of what I call freelancers to do the work for you. So in the case of the New York Times and the Atlantic, are we dealing with people, are we dealing with useful idiots, right, who don't know that what they're saying is nonsense? Are we dealing with extensions of the entities that are corrupting and controlling our system? Maybe, or are we dealing with freelancers who noticed that when they spoke up uh, with skepticism about the lab leak hypothesis that things started to go well for them and when they spoke up in the other direction things went badly and just started to do what it was that effectively this isn't
1: it's selection
0: right it's selection creating an emergent Uh, analog of a conspiracy. Now, I'm not saying there's no conspiracy.
1: Undoubtedly,
0: there are many levels of one here. But there's also a lot of stuff that may well not be conspiratorial. It may be people responding to their incentives and, as you say, selection, choosing those who do the bidding of those uh, in the positions of power.
1: Indeed. Wow. Okay. Um, Let's finish up today before we uh, take a break and then come back for the Q&A. Uh, with two stories that relayed to me this week uh, by uh, an acquaintance in a major West Coast city. I'm sharing these stories with permission, um, but I've changed a few details um, to preserve the anonymity of the people involved. Um, and so the first one, he suggested the heading was You Made Your Bed, You Have to Sleep in It. I'm thinking uh, this is a 2 can play that game uh, story. <clears throat> so we've got a, a woman who was interviewing for a job <clears throat> For which she was qualified and she was asked if she had been vaccinated against COVID, the would be employer clarified that while they don't have mandates now, they had had mandates and they wanted to know uh, if she'd been vaccinated. And, uh, she was offered the job. She turned it down and in telling them why said, I'm looking for a position that is inclusive and uh, I want to work for a company that values diversity. And do not feel, given the past COVID vaccine policy at this company, that uh, this company would be a good place for me to work, to experience those values that I hold so dear. Mm. Uh, and I think that's that's brilliant. Uh, let's, you know, <laughs> use some of their tools against them. Right. And this this also fits with and I again, wish I could show my computer here this week, uh, but I have shown before the sign um, that is at a store in Selwood in Portland uh, that I have I haven't been back for a, a while, but I've seen up for a while, including when everyone was being told you absolutely 100% need to get vaccinated right now. Uh, and there are a lot of lot of stores and restaurants that didn't let you in if you weren't. Uh, and they have this sign up. I'll just read it from my screen. It says, we do not discriminate against any customer based on sex, gender, race, creed, age, vaccinated or unvaccinated. All customers who wish to patronize are welcome in our establishment. Uh, so this is in, in that vein.
0: So I would point out that this is the honorable counterpoint to the evolution of Um, freelance propagandists that's right that if we take care of those who in spite of the fact that it was difficult to do stood up for us you know instead of having uh onerous mandates posted at their door they posted the opposite and they invited people in um you know we should remember those people even now that those mandates are gone Mm -hmm. um we should uh, recognize them and patronize their institutions um because we want a world in which people stand up it's a better world Um, that's right it stands a good chance of functioning
1: certainly do okay second story um also a west coast city and that's relevant because um you know cities across well across the west um but especially in the united states paris is getting it right now isn't it um but especially in the United States since the summer of 2020 and um, I think there wasn't a city on the west coast a major city on the west coast that wasn't spared um, a lot of the the chaos um, and um, people you know even people who persist in their in their pre George Floyd, pre-COVID uh, beliefs about what should and should not be happening at a policy level are looking around saying, you know, I don't, this isn't safe. I don't feel safe. I need to figure out how to protect myself. So we've got a guy who uh, teaches firearm skills and, um, and safety to small groups of people at a long established gun range in school. And um, many of his students who come in, uh, come in with no experience, of course, uh, but also sometimes they're vocally anti-gun. And, um, they feel they have no choice to be there because they're looking around their neighborhoods going, I actually need to figure out how to protect myself. But they're, they're, they resent it. They're sullen. Um, often these same people who are sullen, who will come into these classes, you know, talking, being explicitly loud about, I don't want to be here. I don't think guns are a good idea. They're there. Um, they're also often masked. Uh, it's not maybe a huge surprise that those are, um, overlapping populations even even now um but he this instructor reports that in a recent class this again happened and there were you know small class but a a good portion of the people were you know started out resentful sullen you know vocally resistant to what they were there doing masked not interacting with the rest of the people and that by the end there was none of that it disappeared uh people were laughing together, talking, sharing stories, learning from each other. Everyone take their masks off, like literally. And I think figuratively, everyone had taken their masks off. And, um, the guy who's telling me this says, it's not, it's not about the guns. It's not, the guns aren't bringing people together. That's not what's going on. Uh, He said, "I, I think what it is, is, um, about connecting outside of your comfort zone and interacting with Strangers, frankly, with people who you didn't know, um, who you didn't know before, and coming together around something that is challenging, that is tough, that is a real skill that can be learned, but that you need to focus and and um, and and pay attention, and you can learn not just from you know the person who's supposedly teaching you, but from your peers as well. This is broadening and it's humanizing, and it's something that so many of us have have missed out on and lost access to starting just about three years ago now.
0: Yeah. The uh, sense that I have is, A, whenever we try this thing where we confess our doubts to people and they ante up by confessing their doubts, right, there is a sense, a palpable sense of relief and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i have the sense that most people are living in this tightly constrained narrative where they know what they are expected to believe and they half convince themselves that that is what they believe and they say it out loud and other people affirm them and so they're living in this sort of uh terrified state yes and the you know just as there was something awful about being locked down in our homes at the beginning of the pandemic, when in fact what we should have been doing is gathering outside, right? Gathering outside. Okay, so there's a pathogen and spreading inside of buildings, but we can go outside and talk about it and not be fearful, right? Yeah. That sense of relief is so important. And from the uh, perspective of those who wish to main control, maintain control over us, it is necessary that we find ways to break that uh, hegemony over us mm-hmm. and I think the the natural human part is if you if you take that risk and you do let your guard down and you dare to say what you actually think you're actually concerned about the uh you will paradoxically feel so much better to discover that you're really not alone um, and I, I suspect that's what happened on the gun
1: range yeah I suspect so too and it's you know, it may seem to some that you know it's easy for us to say at this point, right? Um, that you know we we've been doing it for three years, but you know, of course, <laughs> taking an awful lot of shit for doing so, and um, and there's of course the majority of people in the world don't don't know what our positions are when we interact with them, uh, and every single time. I mean, you've just said this, but I'm just going to repeat it. Like every single time that I. Uh, have been in a situation where I'm interacting with someone who, you know, I'm a stranger to them and they're a stranger to me. Uh, And uh, it's, you know, it's a, it's a barista, it's a waitress, it's a dry cleaner, you know, it's some, it's a retail, it's a cashier, you know, Uber driver, something right in any number of, of things. And you say something that suggests anything that isn't in lockstep with, what, given the place you're in, which is to say, like, if you're in a West Coast city, you know what you're supposed to believe on any number of topics. And if you say something that suggests anything outside of lockstep, it is almost universal that what you get is first cautious and then like a, just an outpouring of conversation and relief on both sides and connection you don't end up getting glared at and yelled at and hated. And that certainly happens. But if you're taking as evidence of how people feel, what you see on social media, it's not a good rendering of what is actually happening in the world.
0: Yeah. It's actually a, uh, a co-opting of a natural circuit where we're supposed to be able to assess what people think just based on our interactions with them and, what is apparent and because the narrative control is so powerful we get a very wrong impression about how unified people are in believing certain things whether it's in our city or across the net um you know i'm also struck as you know we uh watched the big short again last night just really as a refresher on what had happened in, in 2008 um i said to you i think
1: i think it might be time to rewatch to, that
0: movie. I was struck actually. I, I can't really believe I didn't put it together. Maybe I've just forgotten. But um, you know, the the bulk of the movie is spent in this excruciating period where the people who had seen what was taking place in yeah. the housing market placed their bets, but the evidence that they were correct is oddly delayed. And um, everybody is shouting at them about how stupid they've been and how they're going to be losing all of the money that has been entrusted to them.
1: And as far as what's public, the most parsimonious, parsimonious explanation is, you guys, you 3%, if you will, you were wrong. Right. You were wrong. And they're like, yeah, of course it's possible, but no, what we're seeing is evidence of such deep fraud, such deep Fraud—that is what we are seeing right now—and no, that's not the most parsimonious, parsimonious explanation. Yes, that's evidence of conspiracy, but you know what? That's what's going on. Yeah, well, and I mean, they were
0: right. It is the most parsimonious, but not at that point. It was impossible to in see in terms it. of
1: what was visible to the rest of the world. Right. Yeah.
0: And so, anyway, I think you know, you and I have been suffering from this very thing throughout much of the pandemic, where mm-hmm. um, just simply following the evidence where it led led to excruciating levels of pressure from in many cases quite close quarters right Mm -hmm. you know back off you're wrong you're killing people all of these uh claims which of course turn out to be nonsense it's Mm -hmm. you know yes the analysis was difficult but it's not that difficult right if you're not responding to the pressure but in any case the um the I think it has to be described as the consequence of the cognitive dissonance that comes from doing exactly the thing you were trained for, right? Scientific analysis and having it put you at odds with all sorts of people who claim that that's what they're doing um, is uh, it's torture. But in the end, reality is what it is. Nature bats last and uh, you know, I fear that they will be able to drag out a recognition of what has taken place for many decades, but, um, the truth will out and, um, pretending that it is other than it appears to be is no way to live. That's right.
1: All right. Well, I think we've gotten there. Um, that means it is your turn to start moving the tech around Boom. and, um, we're going to take a 15-minute break, and this week, for the first time in three weeks, we will come back with a live Q&A. You can ask questions at darkhorseemissions.com. I forgot to mention at the top of the hour uh, that our store has some new stuff in it, including pins. It's got Dark Horse pins now and some other, other great stuff, so um, check that out if you're interested in stuff. Here, I've even got, it's not hidden, but uh, with stickers. <laughs> not We do not sell laptops, you can't have a laptop, you know, stickers.
0: Um, I would just add, uh, a member of the Coalition of the Reasonable Discussion suggested um, pins. Apparently they were already in the works, but but pins are a great way to subtly indicate to others who might also not be of the uh, the enforced perspective that uh, you've been paying attention to dark Horse and might be open to a conversation. So anyway, the idea of people finding each other the way they find us um and often say marvelous things to us the most unexpected of moments mm-hmm. um anyway if you find each other that will be even that much better mm-hmm. so a-, a pin might be a good way of
1: doing that indeed uh, okay so you can um if you've got logistical questions as opposed to questions that you want us to answer you can email darkhorsemoderator at gmail.com consider joining our patreons consider getting our book hunter gatherers guide to the 21st century uh check out my writing on natural selections on my sub stack and until we see you next time be that in 15 minutes or a week from now or sometime later down the road be good to the ones you love eat good food and get outside
0: be well everybody